0: Part 1. A Road That Leads Out West Chapter 1. Why a Cabin in the Woods? A Fever for Cabin Fever I always wanted to live for an extended period of time in a cabin in the woods. Spending many days at Pokagon State Park, where my family often camped or lodged, revealed a shelter off of one of the trails I frequented. The structure was not much, and I'm quite sure I would be disappointed by both the features and location if I visited it today, assuming it is still there. As a wandering kid, I felt like it was in the middle of nowhere, barely touched by the hustles of modern civilization. I could walk inside and stare mindlessly off into the woods. A natural spring flowed from the ground right past the cabin. Without hesitation, I would summon pioneer-like techniques of cupping the water with my hands, drinking straight from the source. That was probably a terrible idea, though to a young boy, that water had never flowed past another living soul. It surely had to have been clean. It appeared pure, and it made me feel wild. I would lie around the area, imagining that I lived there for hours. This would be my first experience that brought about a desire to discover living beyond the confines of a city. There was always an urge to get out into the woods and explore, but growing up where I did, the pickings drew slim, slim and getting slimmer. So much so that simply digging a hole in the ground with some wood around the base would have to do for brief periods to escape the city life, a makeshift fort. Small sections of woods remained adjacent to my neighborhood, but they were not without their own sets of problems. The older kids also enjoyed these territories, so I required caution and awareness. To them, it was just a means to get away from their parents to smoke and drink with no one knowing. An ideal location to stash and safeguard their nudie mags. Those had extreme bartering value in those days, In the best-case scenario, wandering out into the woods and being discovered by troves of older kids would bring on ridicule. That was the best-case scenario. In other areas, the pollution and vivid rumors of angry salt-gun-toting farmers kept the adventures at bay. The ponds became a reservoir for the inbred to dump their chemicals resulting in chemical burns to any youth that yearned for a habitable place to swim. Those problems eventually took care of themselves by the expansion of subdivisions and golf courses. The rustic stomping grounds that I had access to would become developed. In 1986, we stayed with friends of my parents' in cabins out in Colorado, at the foothills of the Rockies. The property seemed to go on forever, but surely there were limits. Streams teemed with trout, horses scattered throughout the open areas. To a nine-year-old boy, they were wild horses roaming free. Drifting up into the hills where the fields ended and the forest began, I would explore and find all sorts of multicolored rocks and fossils. The place illuminated as a piece of heaven, and I did not want to leave a place that set the tone of what I wanted for a few years to come, until the memory faded in the teenage years. Some years later, immediately after my high school graduation, my friends Matt and Andy would take a trip out west with me. Many exciting details would transpire, warranting perhaps another memoir. But skipping towards the tail end of our journey, we hiked through the Pecos Mountain with my Uncle Dave in northern New Mexico, This hike morphed into a picturesque wilderness novel that required maniacal off-road driving just to get in and out of the trailhead, part of which transpired through heavy rain. We moved through remote terrain, rolling hills or steep muddy climbs, over large streams, and through wild fields. At one point, we stopped for a break, allowing for a chance to gaze upon a field with a stream knifing right through. The setting was truly breathtaking and serene. Back when film photography was something more deliberate, I decided to take a picture of this scene to preserve a sense of how it cleansed my soul being there. A spot just fifty yards off the waterfront could sit a cabin with me living inside. Freshwater sources, available fish and game to subsist on to be sure. A powerful reminder of how much my childhood was spent trying to capture that moment in the mountains, a resurrection to the desired endeavor that would not burn dry anytime soon. The return home hosted an agonizing 36-hour greyhound ride from Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Toledo, Ohio, to reflect. Thirty-six straight hours unfettered by sleep because my seat positioned in the last row of the bus for a harrowing majority of the trip a section that was meant only to seat two people. Instead, there were three of us, a mother and her child, speaking endlessly in Spanish. When enough sheep had been enumerated to drift into a slumber, I would be hastily awakened by nature, or nature calling, rather. Sitting in the back meant sitting right next to the disinfectant-emanating bathroom. My legs partly blocked the door from opening so passengers amidst their potty dance, would need to wake me up. My legs blocked their ability to enter. The rest of the time, I sat next to unbathed hippies that smelled worse than the bathroom disinfectant on a contrasting spectrum of funk. I still had the most enjoyable experience between the three of us. Matt had a nearly fractured tailbone from falling while rock climbing, and Andy had a lobster-like sunburn that he acquired at the water park the day before our departure. Steering back to the point meant 36 semi-delirious hours to reflect on the trip as well as where to be going with my life after high school. As a fresh graduate, I had no idea what I would do specifically. I wanted something rugged and fulfilling. Throughout high school, There emerged only one desired path forward after graduation. Trying out for special forces, traveling the world, and feeding on some wanderlust was all that I could see myself doing in that next phase. The catalyst to drive those endeavors no longer splayed out on the table. I had been rejected by the army less than a year earlier because I could not pass the hearing tests. The rejection crushed me. For the first time, I was told that I could not do something. But what else is there for someone like me? I had no desires for wealth or a normal life by any stretch of the imagination. College seemed like a prison, as I generally did well in school when I wanted to, but at the opportunity cost of pursuing what my actual interests were. Those interests were always outside any classroom. Montana Appetizer, 1997 I knew very little of Montana, but more than many. Like others, it came on my map after watching the movie A River Runs Through It, whereas I was curious about what a life such as that would look like. In 1997, I took a long road trip with my friend Vice. He was a blonde-haired man nearly the same age as me, with a perpetually bitter frown on his face that reflected the bulk of his personality. It became my fifth extensive trip out west and the first in the northwest. Our mission was to investigate potential universities, as he was looking to go to school out west, and I was tentatively considering education beyond the associate's degree that I would soon have. We packed up his dad's blue minivan full of canned food, granola bars, cheese crackers, and a comically large barrel O. Pretzels. The first stop was just outside of Chicago to visit some relatives of his. We ended up learning how to play an obscure card game to which we deliberately sabotaged the integrity of the outcome. The reason? Because we were jerks. They were so passionate that it was the greatest game ever and we determined to prove to them the fundamental flaws in its design albeit manufactured flaws we invoked, because we were jerks. It is important to understand that we were the type who would make use of our time by having fun at any cost. One such instance from the past consisted of meandering throughout the large music building of Bowling Green State University while we were waiting for friends to finish their band practice. After exploring every room... A group of students summoned us to audition for the university play, to which, somehow, we immediately earned some key roles. How that actually happened remains a mystery, as we were not even students there. Hours into the practice, we blazed through the script, saying our lines to get the rhythm of the play. Weiss and I had decided that we needed to excuse ourselves before we got in too deep. As honorary gentlemen and guests of BGSU, we needed to show our kindness and consideration, to be sure. After some scheming during a quick break, we had a plan that included the same dramatics needed to flourish in the final showing of the said play. The dramatics? While having another go of seated script rehearsals, I thickened the plot by standing up in front of everyone and protested both my lines and the role they selected me for, despite being the play's frontman. Vice followed suit. Those lines, as I recall, cellared beneath me as a brilliant aspiring thespian, and that Broadway could wait no longer. We then stormed out of that room, leaving behind a cast and crew of the confused, because we were jerks. Back to the trip, From there, we veered up to Duluth, Minnesota, for no other reason than to visit what's supposed to be the safest city in the U.S., at least at the time. It also served to fill up gas en route to the actual destination, Chrisholm, Minnesota, the location where the movie Field of Dreams, Dr. Archibald Graham, lived and later died. We soon discovered that they did not film there, which was disappointing, but... It was a bucket list item to cross off for me. Mission accomplished. From there, a stop in North Dakota. Theodore Roosevelt National Park gave us a quick little hike to some vistas. That later took us to our first official destination, which was Bozeman, Montana, Montana State University. We were sleeping in the back of the van the last few nights, and this provided the first-time chance to be amongst normal people in an enclosed capacity. We found a public bathroom for a mild clean-up. No showers came available, so scrubbing ourselves in the sink would have to do. We freshened up and toured the campus. Two years later, this would be Vice's school of choice. Luckily for him, he cleaned up for this tour. Somewhere along the way in Montana, we discovered the speed limit signs on the interstate said Night Limit 65, with a black backdrop. Curious to understand what that meant, we stopped at a local gas station and queried the attendant. She advised us there was no speed limit, except at night. She cautioned to keep it under 90 miles per hour, but there was no real speed limit on stretches of Montana interstate. Truly the Wild West, I thought. We visited Missoula, which obliged the basis for the aforementioned movie, A River Runs Through It. We visited the University of Montana and moseyed around downtown a bit. The next day, up in the Blue Mountains in some random spot off the road, we hiked our packs up to the top of a hill. We discovered a perfect open space of about 100 square yards to lounge around, have a fire, and spread out. On a wooded hilltop, surrounded by towering evergreens, gave no views or prominent features, but invited a fresh quietude of beautiful Montana. We spent most of the day just unwinding a bit as this allowed the first prospect to avoid sleeping in the back of the van since Chicago, and we already developed a distinct sickness of each other's company and aroma. That night, after properly packing our food supply fifty yards away, suspended from a tree as trained to do, we settled into our sleeping bags in the tent. It was a glorious night's sleep. Until it wasn't. I woke to loud steps. I froze to grunts. The tell-tale sounds of a bear emerged just outside the tent. I shook vice. Bear! Bear! I whisper-screamed. He apparently did not feel it was noteworthy and mumbled himself back to sleep. The night turned quiet. I thought to myself, He's not interested in us, just the food. And that food hung high, fifty yards away from the tent. In that silence, I reached down to my pocket, hoping what I had was a knife or a flamethrower, something to defend in the event of an attack for we were defenseless inside that gift-wrapping paper of a tent. This was, after all, grizzly bear country. What I discovered in my pocket was not a knife, or bear spray, or a Glock with a round already in the chamber. It was a half-eaten package of cheese crackers. I had failed to sanitize the inside of the tent of food particles. The steps started back up again. The grunts started back up again. I shook Vice again. Wake up. It's a fucking bear. The steps got louder. So did the grunts. Closer. Then quiet. At any moment, I could visualize the tent collapsing. Armed only with cheese crackers, I lay ready. Vice was not ready because he remained dead asleep, perhaps dreaming about gummy bears. The silence continued. I slowly displaced another cheese cracker, one for each hand to steady my fortification. The steps resumed, this time getting quieter and quieter. The steps vanished. Until that point in my life, I had no idea that cheese crackers would mean life or death. And bravely thwarting off an imminent bear attack, I felt invincible. No survival manual paid any attention to the value of cheese crackers. What the hell do they know, after all? If that worked, then imagine what a comically large barrel of pretzels could defend against. Those moments were the extent of my first ever Montana visit. But later on, we ventured through Idaho, Utah, and Colorado. We visited the University of Idaho, the University of Utah, and Colorado State University, These states provided opportunities for some salty lake swimming, few showers, getting lost in the desert without water, and many beef stews consumed over a portable stove. And then there was an incident in Moab. The town appeared quaint, enjoyable, actually, whilst walking down the lone strip, literally everyone greeted us. This was also going to be our only expenditure aside from purchasing gas and tickets to a discount movie theater for the entire trip. We were actually going to sit in a diner and eat. There was not anything particularly noteworthy about the place or the food variety. The seating could have hosted many stereotypical movie diner scenes. The staff seemed equally and universally reminiscent of hard-working, no-nonsense restaurant workers that had seen and heard far more than what they got paid for. In the kitchen was a bearded cook, flipping a burger and smiling at us intently. He appeared to have some teeth missing. Unfortunately, upon receiving our menus and ordering drinks, my co-traveler had pooped in their restroom with no ability to flush. The toilet was broken, and the materials were overflowing. They would surely know it was us. The smell would leak through the hinged barrier in a matter of minutes. The risk rose too high. We ditched the restaurant before our waitress could bring back our drinks, and before they could contact the authorities to investigate Poopgate. We saved ourselves $15 worth of prepared meal, but still left a generous tip for whomever was tasked to clear excrement from the toilet bowl.